This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, the very best bits of today's show. It is a Wednesday, the 18th of January. What have we got for you? Well, we had some breaking news during the show, inflation numbers from Dubai. Brandy will give you those in a moment. What else do we have? Still focusing on sustainability because Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week continues. Interview with Professor David Hanna of the University of Birmingham. He is a professor of hydrology. I have never interviewed one of those before, but he's a fascinating guy. You're going to enjoy it. Talking about water science and climate change. Also looking at the economics of circuses. Cirque du Soleil has been in town at the Coca-Cola Arena. Mark Jankar is the boss of the arena. He's been talking us through the economics of how that works. And finally, talking economics with Richard Boxall, partner and chief economist of PwC. All that to come, but first up, those breaking Dubai inflation numbers. Let's turn our attention to a bit of breaking news. Brandy's got some more insight on Dubai's inflationary numbers. Yeah, Brandy's got two Excel sheets worth of figures in front of it. Um, we've had the monthly numbers for Dubai come out from the Dubai Statistics Centre. Month on month, we've got a growth of more than half a percentage point, 0.6 of 1%. That is, um, Emirates MBD has been crunching these numbers as well. Thank you, Ed. Uh, the fastest inflation rate in three months. Why use your phone as a calculator when there's a friendly economist to do it for you, I say. Um, 5.2% is the annual growth year on year. A number of reasons for that. Transport costs were up, um, as was the cost of going out and having a good time, uh, officially known as recreation and culture. Um, The big driver in terms of the weighting that it has in the CPI basket was actually housing and utilities. The rate of growth at which it rose wasn't the highest amongst all the different things that make up the basket, um, but it accounts for for 40% of the the basket. So if you look at the influence that it has, because for a lot of us, the biggest check, most of us, I would say, that we write every month is going to be for your rent. And that's that's what it's taken off, rent. Saw, obviously, therefore, an outsized contribution. Yeah, it's no surprises there that that element has gone up significantly for most people, although as many of the real estate experts we speak to, including the guys from Hauser, have told us the biggest increases have been at the high end of the market. And frankly, they can afford it. Thankfully, more affordable homes, whether it's in International City or in Discovery Gardens or in Sharjah, those increases have been far less pronounced, which is a relief so that the inflation is being felt more by rich people who want nice stuff rather than people who who, who just living their lives. That doesn't mean there is no inflation for everyday people. And of course, we know that there is, but it is more at the high end of the market. You only need to look at your WhatsApp groups um, or Twitter or elsewhere to see people still talking of rent rises and rent um, eviction notices where landlords are hoping to get a little bit more down the track. What is also really interesting about this month's CPI basket is that food prices actually declined Slightly, We've had Tom Harvey of Spinney's in the studio talking about what they're doing to cut food prices. Um, and we've also spoken to, to him and I think others about what the, the arbitrage, the strong dollar compared to the euro and other currencies mean for getting groceries in here. It's good for us. And all of that weighing into a very slight decline, but a decline um, nevertheless month on month for December, although food inflation is still up if you compare what you are buying this year with what you would have paid for it a year before.
We have been looking at the oil price. Uh, oil price is rising uh, almost 2% overnight on optimism about China reopening. Uh, Katija Hacker has been giving her thoughts uh, on this one, Chief Economist Emirates MBD. Uh, ask Katija, while OPEC stuck to its demand forecast for 2023, what's your outlook for oil this year? Our expectation for oil prices is that they will move higher over the course of 2023, um, particularly as China's economy looks to return to normal levels of activity uh, sooner than had been expected uh, in the fourth quarter of last year. Um, so we think uh, Brent will average around $105 per barrel this year, starting off at a, obviously a lower level and then increasing as we head into the second half of 2023. Brandy Scott in the Commodities Chair for us this morning. Yeah, we have, well, we've got two things here. We've got that report that Katija mentions where OPEC has left its main forecast for how much energy the world is going to need this year pretty much unchanged, 2.2 million barrels a day. They did have a note in their monthly report, it's their oil market monitoring report, um, saying that they do expect to see the Chinese economy doing better on the back of it reopening. Um, But having said that, it also slightly reduced its forecast for how much oil China would actually use. In Davos, Meanwhile, uh, speaking to Bloomberg, the newish OPEC Secretary General, he's been in the job for uh, for a few months now, Haytham Al-Gase, um, saying that they were optimistic, and again, talking about green shoots, signs coming out of China, but cautiously optimistic when it came to the outlook for the global economy. And again, as we always hear from OPEC ministers, uh, he said they will do whatever it takes to keep markets balanced. It's always about the balance with OPEC. Never about setting Never prices. Never about the price. Never target a price. Never, Never set a price. Never talk about a price. Not what they do. Talking of fuels, oils, energies and otherwise, I mean, Katija's thoughts there, but you see that comments coming through yesterday from uh, the boss of Heathrow, the Heathrow CEO, John Holland Kay. He was on a panel with Richard Quest from CNN uh, at the World Economic Forum over in Davos yesterday. <laughs> Came out with a fairly alternative solution to sorting out Uh, escalation of prices in aviation. Um, He suggested that wealthy individuals and companies should pay extra to fly with SAF. And that's not South African Airways. That is sustainable aviation fuel. The theory, therefore, to bring down the costs for everyone else, particularly people in developing countries. He said that financiers and energy suppliers should invest in SAF production, sustainable aviation fuel production, including in emerging markets. How does he suggest that happens? I mean, SAF is more expensive than A1, than jet fuel at the moment. We saw it ahead... Well, it actually ended up offsetting a, a flight with another SAF flight to get a load of delegates to COP27 from, from Washington um, because there isn't a lot of SAF around. And like you say, there has to be a lot more production. I think it was it was a flight from elsewhere that went um, and basically offset the, the, the Davos flight. But is he suggesting that you should, what, pay more for your ticket or pay more to be on a plane that's a SAF fueled plane? I mean, there's only a few places in the world, Japan um, mm. being one of them, that that you could take one. Are they asking to see a bank statement before you hop on? He, It was quite a sort of pointed, um, and it, there was a bit of pointing going on as well, where he literally pointed to the people in the room uh, and said, it's on your head, on your head be it, people. So I don't know whether that's got to do with, uh, is this is this SAF fuel fueling 
private jets of those that have got to Davos yeah. uh, and therefore paying more into the coffers of aviation to help mitigate costs elsewhere? Um, or is he talking about having sort of dedicated airlines that uh, that have SAF? Or, as you say, is it a means test when you actually choose, when you actually just going to Google you and see how much you're worth? <laughs> see Hang how on. much you're worth, and then go. Oh right, well, okay, your ticket's going to cost X amount. He said this as individuals and companies, we need to be paying the premium for sustainable aviation fuel so that we can get the cost of it down, so that the mass market in developing countries don't have to pay for the energy transition. The wealthy people in this room, yes, all you, of them. And wealthy nations should be funding the energy transition in aviation to help supporting developing countries. There's always a couple of of the rich at Davos who stand up every year and say we should be paying more in tax, we should be doing more things. Uh, this year it is the Disney heiress Abigail Disney. Um, not the first time she has, has done this. Um, Mark Ruffalo, actor, the Hulk. Um, and others who are calling on the world leaders who are at Davos to introduce wealth taxes, which is one of the things that Oxfam, you were talking to yesterday, are also calling uh, for a ultra-rich tax for the, the top 1%. Exactly that. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's hear an interview now I did on Monday down at the World Future Energy Summit with a fascinating guy, Professor David Hanna. His job title will take a while. Deep breath. He is Professor of Hydrology at the University of Birmingham. Uh, but he's more than that. He is also the chairholder for the UNESCO, United Nations Chair in Water Sciences at that university, the University of Birmingham. Reuters lists him as one of the world's top 1,000 climate scientists. He is in the UAE for this summit. He's going to be back for COP28, as you hear a little bit later on. But it began by taking a step back. I've never met a professor of hydrology before. So I said to him, and he's been doing this for 30 years now, he got his PhD back in the 1990s. I said, uh, Professor Hannah, you're a professor of hydrology. What is the problem that you are trying to solve? So hydrologists try and understand how the water cycle works. And clearly our water cycle is changing under climate and other drivers of change. So what I seek to do is to understand how the water cycle is changing, but really more importantly, why the water cycle is changing, how it relates to how our climate is warming, and how humans are interfering with the water cycle. So not just changing climate, but changing land use, land cover, and having direct influences on water through domestic, industrial, and uh, agricultural uses. And you focus on clean water, don't you? So icy mountains and, and rivers in the valley, that's your focus. Why particularly that area of focus? So I actually work quite broadly across both water quantity, so how much water, so too much, too little, floods and droughts. Also water quality, how dirty the water is. I do, and it started off working on uh, snow and glacier hydrology, so trying to understand how snow and ice melt and how water runs off from mountain environments and indeed in high latitudes as well, because these environments are really, really important in terms of climate change and very sensitive because they provide water resources in high mountains and in high latitude regions, particularly during the low flow summer season when they may be the only source of water for people and also for ecosystems. Now, I was looking on your, your profile at the University of Birmingham. Is it early 90s you got your PhD? So you've been covering this for nearly three decades now. What's changed over that time? What new problems have developed since you started out? So I, I started my PhD actually working in the French Pyrenees. And there's a, a sort of quite remarkable uh, thing to see there now is the glaciers that I worked on. So the Pyrenees are the place in which we have the most southerly glaciers in the whole of Europe. And uh, when I was there, they were several hectares uh, in size. And now they're shrinking and some indeed have disappeared. So that is, that is sort of quite notable evidence of climate change within 
our, our lifetimes. I think in terms of what's changed in terms of our, our knowledge as we've, we've developed, I think it's become sort of fairly unequivocal that the water cycle is changing as a result of climate change. And what we're trying to do now is to better understand the uh, uncertainties of how it is changing to try and con constrain that. So how can we make projections better into the future? How can we make projections for locations, many places on the globe, which are still what we might call data poor. We don't have information of how they have changed and, and how they might change into the future. What are the, some of the solutions that you're looking at for this part of the world? Of course, many areas of the Middle East, very arid and desert regions. Yeah, so I think that the arid regions, of course, by their very nature, have a limited amount of uh, water resources um, because of their, their climate. So I think as well as focusing on the uh, supply side, so how the water cycle is changing, we really need to think quite carefully about the demand side. So what technological innovations can we make? Can we reuse water? Uh, thinking about how water is, is used for, for a range of uh, different ways, grey water recycling, for example. But we also need to work quite carefully on, on behavioural change and adding the people. So how can we change uh, water use efficiency in terms of people's day-to-day -day interactions with water? Indeed, we've been working with people in the area of corpus linguistics in English to, to think about how do we talk about water to people? How do we make it more relevant to their daily lives and to change the ways in which they, they interact through changing human behaviour? This is your second visit to the UAE. You're going to be back again later on this year at COP28. Why are events like this important? I think COP uh, as, as a process is really important because, of course, it's a negotiation. It's about thinking about how we uh, think about our emissions targets, how we deal with issues of adaptation and loss and becoming more resilient in a changing uh, uh, climate. Uh, I think what's particularly important about them as a scientist is to come here and to make sure that the most up-to-date science is presented to make a very strong case for the fact that our, in my case, our water cycle is changing. We need to think about uh, how we adapt and how we become more resilient and what solutions we can, we can develop uh, as we move into the future. Tell me a little bit about your role with UNESCO. So I've held the UNESCO chair in water science since 2016. It's a, it's a UNESCO chair in water science. It's the only UNESCO chair in uh, the science of hydrology. It's understanding, as I said, how the water cycle works. There's a, a network of about 50 UNESCO chairs in, in water globally. So I spend quite a lot of time uh, working in UNESCO Paris through something called the Intergovernmental Hydrology Programme, which, if you like, is the IPCC for water. And it links to sustainable development goal number six, which is all about water and sanitation for all. So much of my work there is all about trying to think about how is, again, the water cycle changing, but how does that water interact with people and how we can preserve and restore ecosystems. One particularly important part of what we do is in the latest intergovernmental hydrology program into its ninth phase, we're thinking about nature-based solutions, how nature can be part of the solution in terms of particularly how can nature store and release water to avoid uh, floods, to uh, reduce impacts of droughts, and also to make water cleaner. And finally, inevitably, a lot of this work involves a lot of travel. You're based in the UK, you're here in the UAE at the moment. How do you manage your own personal carbon footprint? How do you think about balancing the need to meet people with the need to minimize your yeah. carbon footprint? Uh, That's a, a very, very important question and something clearly I uh, reflect on, on very strongly. So I think when we're thinking about sustainability, we need to frame it in a broader sense that carbon becomes something that we become, as we've, many people have focused, said, carbon tunnel visioned on, focusing on specifically. In terms of my own carbon footprint, I'm very careful about where I travel, increasingly moving to where we can do, having online events. But for events such as this, where you're meeting new people, different places, having serendipitous conversations, there is a value in uh, meeting in person. Personally, in terms of my lifestyle, I think about what I drive, I don't eat very much meat, and I think very carefully 
about what I consume. I think most people might be surprised that, uh, that although flying, for example, is focused on in terms of a source of, uh, of carbon emission, actually the procurement change, how you purchase, how, what, you, what you choose to buy, is probably where most of the embodied carbon ex exists. So if we think more about what we're buying and, of course, do what we always sh should do, which is think about how we reduce, how we reuse and how we recycle. David Hanna, Professor of Hydrology at the University of Birmingham, speaking to me earlier this week at the World Future Energy Summit. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Speaking of entertainment venues, we are speaking now to the boss of Coca-Cola Arena. It's been playing host to the circus and Cirque du Soleil has its final performance in Dubai tonight. We are looking now at what Richard Dean would call circonomics, uh, the business of getting hundreds of performers and their trapezes, trapeze eye, uh, into town. Very pleased to have Mark Jankar with us in the studio this morning. Mark, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Morning. Before we start into the, the hows and wheres, what kind of turnout have you had for this run? As you just mentioned, tonight is our 10th and final show. Um, so every night we've had probably between about three and a half to 4,000. So across the, uh, the 10 shows, we're anticipating nearly 40,000 people. What kind of percentage is that on what you would have liked to see? How, how full have you been? Uh, well, obviously, the venue is, is multi-purpose in its true essence. So realistically, the concept design, we probably would have been able to go up to about 4,300 as a maximum. Um, with the sort of the smallest amount around about 3,200. So I think we've hit the sweet spot. Well, let's talk about getting the, the circus to town. How far in advance do you book something in like, like Cirque? So in mature markets, North America, Europe, you're probably booking at least sort of minimum of 18 months in advance. In the Middle East, we do things a little bit on a shorter lead time. Uh, so this one, we probably did about four and a half months before we actually went on sale. So it's about five and a half months before the event happened. Why is our lead time shorter? Um, a combination of things. Obviously, um, now ra what used to be a one-off booking for, for Dubai, now obviously there is a GCC play. We just heard about Saudi's big investment and, and the continued push. Um, obviously, you've had the Qatar World Cup uh, and Bahrain coming online. So it's an understanding of what a big touring event like Cirque can do in the region uh, rather than just a drop-in and drop-out. So let's chat about what physically needs to be brought here for the show. Give me some numbers, people, equipment, boxes. Yep. Um, so in terms of people, we've got over 100 performers from the team at actually Cirque, which equates to exactly 497 room nights. We've got uh, 27 40-foot containers worth of acrobatic gear, trusses, trampolines, you name it, coming through. Um, uh, you've, of the 100 performers, you've got about 30 different nationalities. Um, all of obviously are international, uh, so they're, they're flying in. And in terms of obviously um, the pre-work that happens, you're probably looking at around about 20 to 30 people um, two to three months in advance regularly coming into Dubai to make sure that preparations for the venues take place. And how long does it actually take to put it all together, the aerial rigging and the rest of it? So um, you're looking at probably around about a 24-hour install. Um, followed by at least another day for rehearsals. So effectively looking at 48 hours before the first performance to get ready. Um, we will have 10 shows across six days with the day's break in between. And then you're looking at about 12 hours to get out. 
And how meticulous do you have to be? What's the health and safety like for putting this together? So obviously from a venue's perspective, um, health and safety is is at the foremost. When you add a complex show like Cirque with acrobatics and, and so forth, um, you know, it's very much about marrying up the, the relevant documents and health and safety standards across the world, different versions. Um, so f- for us, not only obviously from a production side in terms of making sure that the rigging and trampetes are all within alignment, but also the execution of the performers, the access, uh, working with civil defense to ensure that the the fire exits are as per requirements and so forth. So the utmost attention. Because these guys, I mean, I went to the matinee, they're flying pretty high. There's a reason that the audience is as gasping as they're doing their tricks. What does that mean in terms of things like insurance? So insurance, uh, obviously there's many types of insurance that has to be taken out for a show like this. So um, all the performers as part of Circus Soleil have their premium health insurance from a global perspective. And then on site, we need a variety of um, insurances. Two predominant ones is public liability and obviously uh, cancellation insurance. Does the sheer amount of people, logistics, staging, make it more expensive to bring something like Cirque out than another show? Cirque is a very expensive show to bring out anywhere in the world, even if they have residencies in North American venues uh, or or European venues. Um, You have to sort of understand that with 100 travelling people, um, the logistics, we talked about room nights earlier, um, there is not only a fee, but there's obviously a percentage of tickets sold that Circus Soleil takes. Um, so when you compile everything together, you do need a minimum of around 10 shows to make it work. Are the margins on something like Cirque better than getting a, a band or a, a comedian? When you look at these, and I mean, you're, a, you're a, running a business, effectively. You've got a, a balance sheet. You've got, you've got a P&L. Um, where are the margins best for you? One guy on stage telling jokes or 100-odd acrobats swinging from the ceiling? Against depends the time of the season as well for us. Um, so in this particular instance, um, without revealing sort of the, the numbers, um, well, you could. The, the the margin comes in volume of shows and uh, food and beverage and, and parking revenue that you generate, rather than, for example, a one-off show with a comedian who may be significantly cheaper, but obviously it's just one performance. You may have four, five, six thousand people in the building, but you've only got them in there for two and a half hours. Speaking of getting people in and out quickly, you've also had an ice show recently. You had Sleeping Beauty on ice. How long did it take to turn uh, the Coca-Cola Arena into an ice rink? So exactly from the moment Sleeping Beauty finished on the Saturday night to Circus Soleil coming into the building was 31 hours. That was people with hair dryers frantically melting ice? There is a, a method to the madness. Um, obviously, with, with the ice show, um, you know, we had different, there's obviously different types of systems for ice. Um, this one required the, the, the modular ice systems to be broken off, so you didn't actually necessarily have to fully melt the ice. You could have done that outside of the main area and taken it outside, whereas previously in December 2021, when we had the ice hockey, it was a different systems for ice because it's requirements for the KHL where you physically had to melt the ice inside the venue before you could remove the piping. So the technology behind ice allows us to be able to, to move it in and out very quickly. Well, we've got just one minute left with you. What can you tell us about what you might have lined up for, for 2023 in terms of, of X and what you're hoping to get? So 23 is, I think, a, a very, very exciting year. Um, so later today, I think in about 45 minutes, we're announcing another two shows. 
Uh, one is of a Afrobeats nature. Why wait? You've got a microphone <laughs> Why now. wait? Another one is of a Southeast Asian content. So we'll wait for 45 minutes with your radio partners, uh, other stations to be able to uh, to break that news. But uh, it is very exciting. For us, it's about delivery of genre of, of shows. We'll probably look at delivering between sort of 60 to 70 shows in 2023 and hoping at least sort of, you know, eight to 12 of those are, are those big AAA acts. Mark Shankar is the general manager at Coca-Cola Arena, uh, speaking to us this morning about acrobatonomics, what it's taken to get Cirque du Soleil into town. It is the final Cirque performance tonight. Thanks very much for joining us, Mark. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. So the latest edition of PwC's Middle East Economy Watch paints a, a rather um, positive picture uh, for local, not so local, but regional uh, economies here in the GCC. GCC expected to buck the global recession trend, uh, that trend being led by economic headwinds that seem to be building to storm level in many parts of the world, despite some of the positive comments we've seen coming out of the World Economic Forum recently. Let's get some more insight into uh, this latest analysis from PwC. Partner and Chief Economist of PwC is Richard, Richard Boxall, who's been kind enough to Join us live in studio early doors this morning. Rich, thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. Thank you. Good morning. So why are we here in the GCC, the economy is here, sheltered from the aforementioned storm? Yeah, so this is something I've been, um, a narrative I guess I've been pushing for several months now, more just because there have been such uh, gloomy global news around. And I think, you know, often people assume that's going to impact the, the region and the GCC, and it just hasn't. Um, and that's been clear for for several months, in fact, most 2022. Now, in terms of the reasons why, I guess there are a, a few in particular, um, but I guess two things really stand out. One is uh, we have been through a period of strong dollar, mm-hmm. which actually has been tough for a number of other economies, but actually it's quite positive for the GCC. So it's helped shelter the GCC from that big surge in inflation that we've seen in Europe and elsewhere. Um, but the dollar, the high dollar has helped insulate the economy from that. But second is the high and uh, rising oil price that we saw through 2022. So uh, obviously high oil prices just brings uh, dollars into the economy and that filters through. So these twin, these twin effects in particular and coming together have created this um, almost Goldilocks-like situation, uh, which is fairly unique to the GCC, given what else is happening elsewhere in the global economy. Yeah, so good 2022, more of the same in 2023, according to your analysis. How's that going to look in terms of, well, A, the ratings from credit agencies, and B, GDP here in the region? Yeah, so um, the credit rating agencies have picked up on this, um, and for the first time since uh, the the challenges that the region faced in 2015-16, the, the rating agencies have actually started to increase the credit ratings of the region. So there have been several years where there have been repeated downgrades in the region. Mm. Last year uh, was the first year that actually that was reversed. And I think that is not just a reflection of the fact that the economies in the regions uh, are doing well, but actually uh, the governments have really turned a corner 
on how they're managing their finances. And so we've seen strong fiscal surpluses come through. Now, all of these things set up, uh, again, a, a strong 2023. Mm. So very conscious about some of the negative sentiment, at least coming into the new year for 2023. Uh, again, globally, because of hiking interest rates, there is an anticipation of slowing growth, if not recession in at least some parts of the global economy. But again, the GCC is going in with momentum across the board. Uh, it's got fiscal surpluses. Oil is expected to remain elevated, maybe not necessarily increased from where it is, but it's still at high high levels. Um, the dollar may soften a little bit and come off, but there's momentum in the non-oil economy. There's uh, uh, fiscal surpluses for governments to use, uh, you know, and a lot of momentum there. So. I mean, you've looked, you, you've picked on five key trends that will um, help to dominate GCC. And, and when we say GCC economies, is this, a, is this indicative of every economy across the GCC or some doing better than others? Yeah, I mean, there's always um, variation uh, <laughs> across the GCC. But, you know, for, in broad terms, they are moving in the same direction and they're moving in the same direction to have similar structures to their economy but for example maybe Bahrain is not performing quite so well on uh, some of these metrics you know and um, the, the, you know the, inf the inflation story is a bit different in Qatar mm. and uh, and that's because of particular things like the World Cup and construction that happened before the World Cup that's now coming off but in broad terms they are moving in a fairly similar similar direction. So let's just dive into a couple of these trends, if we can, in a few more details. The five key trends that you have um, suggested will dominate GCC economies this year. Uh, GCC will escape the global slowdown. Is that a given, or is there there is always a risk that we will we're not completely immune to it? So I, I think we can be fairly confident that the GCC will outperform. The, the global economy again this year. The risk, there is a risk, there's always a risk. Uh, the single biggest risk is probably the oil price, right? If there is a fall off in the oil price, again, the expectation from you know, oil forecasters is somewhere between 75 and $95 through the course of this year. You know, that will be a good, uh, a good level to um, prog progress the economies. If it falls below that, then uh, then that's where the risk lies. But we've got China opening up. That brings new demand for oil into the global economy. So I think it's a, a moderate risk. Um, One of the others we look at is the liquid squeeze. Uh, the, the liquid squeeze will ease, which rolls off the tongue very nicely <laughs> as well. Um, corrective action also to be expected? Yeah, so this is liquidity. The liquidity, um, I picked this up more because we started to see this in the region after the Fed started to increase interest rates uh, in the earlier part of uh, 2022. And then we started to see uh, a liquidity squeeze in particularly the uh, Saudi banking sector. Now, um, I went through the global financial crisis. Mm. You start seeing things like this and it starts getting you, you know, a bit concerned. Uh, so we're tracking this, but it seems to be coming off as an adjustment uh, in the banking sector in Saudi. We're not seeing it propagate anywhere else in particular. So we think that will dissipate. And really it was a case of 
credit being lent into the Saudi economy running ahead of deposits coming into the Saudi banking system. So you've got this liquidity sque- squeeze. Mm. Um, but that, that seems to be dissipating. So I don't think that will be, be a problem in 2023. You've also highlighted a resurgence of the non-oil economy. It's been well documented and uh, you're, you're confident that will continue. Also, efforts continue to, the, to green the economy. We're seeing those ongoing down in Abu Dhabi at the moment, COP28 at the end of this year. Conscious of time, got about 30 seconds. Just want to touch on this last one as well. The war for local talent, talent will intensify. Why is that going to have an impact? Yeah, so um, there is a continued need to uh, generate jobs for uh, locals. Um, we've seen, you know, penalties and incentives emphasised and rolled out here in the UAE. You've got similar uh, shifts in uh, Saudi as well and elsewhere. So the governments are uh, doubling down, in effect, on this localization agenda. The issue is. Uh, the unemployment rates, I guess, of locals is coming right down. Mm. And that just creates uh, a tighter labour market for locals. And that's a, an issue for businesses in the region as well to, to manage. Richard, going to leave it there at a time on this schedule. And thank you so much indeed for your time this morning. PwC's Middle East Economy Watch is out. A big thanks to Richard Boxshall, Partner and Chief Economist of PwC, for joining us this morning. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.